You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. Well, we've got some reaction to a recent conversation we had with Dr. Ben Mays on Herman Zasa and his view of the creation account. Also, a question about. Why, when names change in the Bible, God changes the name. Sometimes it changes for good, and sometimes it doesn't. Welcome back to Issues Etc. on this Tuesday afternoon, February the 27th. Time for listener email. And the Issues Etc. comment line, our email address, talkbackatissuesetc.org. And the comment line, 618-223-8382. David writes, first, I'd like to compliment you on the Issues Etc. podcast. I listen as often as I can, and the episodes are always well-produced and interesting. Pastor Todd does a great job with the interviews. Episode 541 with Dr. Ben Mays was an enlightening discussion on 20th century Lutheran theologian Herman Sasse and his views on the creation account. I'm especially interested in the topic of creation and try to tune in when these episodes occur, but it seems that you typically present the discussions using a false dichotomy— Either one believes in young earth creationism, created 6,000 years ago in 624-hour days, or one believes in evolution, as Sasa apparently did. There are actually solid interpretations of the biblical creation accounts, which allow one to maintain a firm belief in the inerrancy of Scripture, creation ex nihilo, and the historicity of Adam and the fall, in which don't demand a young earth. I fall into the old earth creation camp, as do many others in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and yet reject evolutionary creationism. But I would never advocate that my particular interpretation is the only acceptable one, as most young earth creationist organizations claim. As a former young earth creationist, I can understand how one could have a YEC interpretation, even though I now disagree with it, but the reverse doesn't seem to be acceptable these days with YECs. Unfortunately, there has been an increasing emphasis on young earth creationism in our synod to the point of divisive resolutions being passed in recent conventions. In any event, keep up the good work, and thanks for your production of issues, etc., and thanks for the feedback and for listening, David. Well, let's just say from the outset that this isn't some kind of new emphasis in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The Missouri Synod is held to a six-day creation from its beginning, and what you're seeing in convention is a reiteration of those beliefs. This is not be, some new idea being introduced in the Lutheran Church, Missouri, and it's always been our teaching. And when it's addressed in convention, it's usually simply because so many people are rejecting that teaching, like our listener here. So that's why they continue to reiterate it, not because they're trying to push some kind of agenda, because this has been our teaching. If you want to look it up, there's a document called a brief statement that explains this in detail. It is the official teaching of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Congregations and pastors are required to adhere to it, although, yes, many don't. They are in violation of their oaths. And here's just part of the statement on creation. We teach that God has created heaven and earth, 
and that in the manner and in the space of time recorded in the Holy Scriptures, especially Genesis 1 and 2, namely, by his almighty creative word and in six days. We reject every doctrine which denies or limits the work of creation as taught in Scripture. And then it goes on to talk about the popularity of evolution even when this statement was written. So the official teaching of the Lutheran Church of Missouri said, if I got up here and, and advocated for an old earth creation, my district president should call me and say, you are violating your oath. That is not our teaching. You have agreed to believe, teach, and confess what it is we believe, teach, and confess. So that's, that's the first caveat there. The second one really is, and I think this is a subtle point made by Dr. Mays that may have been lost on some of the listeners, and that is somehow Zasa, he was able to at least ostensibly maintain Scripture's inerrancy and its inspiration. But I think Ben made a great case that what Zasa did unwittingly was reject Scripture's authority. Because whenever the science spoke, it always spoke louder than Scripture for Zasa on the creation issue. And in effect, he said, Scripture's authority, it may be inspired and inerrant, and you'd have to put an asterisk next to inerrant insofar as it goes for Zasa. But when he encountered the claims of evolution and of, at the time, kind of the beginning of modern cosmology, he always went with them rather than the Bible. So what was his final authority? Well, his final authority was outside Scripture. And that's a point that I think older earth creationists need to consider. You, you ostensibly uphold inerrancy and inspiration. What about its authority? When the claims of reason and science encounter the text of Genesis 1 in particular, why does Genesis 1 always lose? Or has to be changed or reinterpreted? Why? Well, that's how the magisterial use of reason works. Reason over Scripture. Rather than the ministerial use of reason, which is, Scripture says something, doesn't seem reasonable, but reason must bow the knee to Scripture. And that's where young earth creationists say, look, does it seem reasonable in light of all the stuff that's come to light in the last hundred years? No, but reason does not rule over Scripture. Scripture rules over reason. It doesn't look reasonable to us now. It certainly will in the new creation. We get to watch it all recreated in an instant. You know, that's the big problem is Scripture not only claims that God created the world in the six days, it claims that God's going to recreate it instantly at the coming of Christ, a new heaven and a new earth. No 13.8 billion years required. He's going to recreate the whole thing. So if you've got a problem with the young earth creation where God took six days to do it, you really are going to have a big problem when he takes no time. In the twinkling of an eye, says the apostle. So you've actually got two problems, the first creation and the second creation. But I got some questions. I'm going to just run through a few of them. I, I actually have written on this extensively just to drive my point home. And that is, please, what in the text of Genesis 1 suggests or even requires an old earth? What in the actual text? Just dealing with the text. What are the reference to evening and morning in Genesis 1? If they're not evenings and mornings, then they got to be something. Where in the text of Genesis 2 and following do we pass out of 
kind of epoch times, long periods of time described as days, into ordinary time. And what signal in the text tells you, oh, we're now moving from calling days, billions of years, days, to calling days, days. Where in the text of Genesis does that transition take place? I had one retired pastor tell me, well, somewhere around Genesis 12. And I said, well, where, where is it in the text that says, now we're, now we're moving into real time. And he, he was honest and said, it's not there. So what creative actions in Genesis 1 require more than six 24-hour periods of time for a God who is able to create out of nothing? Where else in Scripture is the word day used to describe billions of years? And you don't get off, you don't get a pass for saying, well, maybe it's not billions, it might be millions. Same question. You've just changed one letter, but it's the same question. How are we to understand the relationship between six epoch days, that is, days describing billions of years, and Exodus 20, verse 11, where it clearly says, in six days, God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. Therefore, the seventh day is sanctified. And there's no doubt about the, in that command about the, keeping the Sabbath day holy that it's a day. So right there, Exodus twenty eleven. in six days, God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the seventh day is sanctified. I once was debating Shane Rosenthal about this, and he said, well, just at the end of the debate, he said, if someone could show me just one passage of scripture that says God created in six days outside of Genesis one, then I'll be convinced. And some old guy in the audience raised his hands and he said, Exodus twenty eleven. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And that was the end of the debate. I didn't even need to show up for that one. Are there considerations outside the text of Genesis that are really driving your conclusions? So are you really reading Genesis and drawing conclusions from the text? Or are you reading into Genesis conclusions that are coming from someplace else? So... There are many, many more questions. If you want, I've written two articles on this. I think the first one was called Seven Questions for Old Earth Creationists. And then the next one, several years ago, I wrote one, More Questions for Old Earth Creationists. And if anybody would like them, I'm happy to dig them up and send them to you. Todd at issuesetc.org. I'll send you those journal articles. You had mentioned that this has been the official position of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, but the brief statement didn't come out till I was looking up as 1932 and the Missouri Synod was stormed in 1847. Right, and all they were doing was reiterating the historic position of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. You know, the guys who founded the Missouri Synod, they weren't that sophisticated. This was the very mid, you know, 1830s. They did not have modern cosmology or astronomy or any of those things. So they kind of naively believed what the Bible said. And so it was reiterated in a brief statement. They weren't introducing a new teaching. They were simply saying, this is our position, always has been, always will be. Two questions. It's not mentioned in the Book of Concord, correct? The creation? The creation. six 24-hour day creation. I seem to remember Paul McCain saying, I just assumed. No, it isn't. Because it was never called into question at the time. Just like the women's ordination right. wasn't mentioned. The reason, the reason, if you find something that's not mentioned, a, an important teaching of the Bible that's not mentioned in the Lutheran confessions, it's because no one 
questioned it at the time. They're only dealing with things that people question that were being called into question or, or denied. So since a six-day creation was not being called into question, then they simply didn't address it. Now, you can find quotes from Luther where Luther likes to play fast and loose back and forth. Luther says, well, it could have been six seconds, six minutes. So he's willing to say it'd be, it could be done instantly or it, it, practically. And he didn't have a huge problem with stretching it out to longer than days, but he was not talking about 13.8 billion years. So you can't use Luther to stretch six days into 13.8 billion years. And that raises another question. The sequence of events in the Genesis account, if you, if you want to make it fit with modern cosmology, you have to rearrange the, rearrange the sequence of events. You have to have the sun, at the very least, created before light. It has to be the first thing created. Right? I mean, that's what, where are you going to get light if not from our star? So you've got to rearrange that event. You have to rearrange all the sequence of events. So you're not just, you're not just kind of, oh, this means that. You have to actually, if you want to be honest and be an old earth creationist, you have to go to the Genesis account and say, what does day one correspond to in the claims of modern cosmology? And you'll find that you're going to have to do a lot of damage to the Genesis account to make it fit. And that's not a good way. If that's how you start with the very first chapter of the Bible, you might as well close the book and put it down. Second question. Is a brief statement of the doctrinal position of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod adopted in 1932 part of pastors' ordination vows? Yes. Okay. We are bound not only to the scriptures and the confessions, but we are also bound to uphold the teachings of, it's called in our ordination vows, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, meaning the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And it is part of our ordination vows. There are those, some of them erstwhile seminary professors who try to argue otherwise, but it doesn't, it doesn't make it through the laundry. When we come back, a little more listener email, the issues, etc. cetera, comment line on this Tuesday, February the 27th. You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. The characteristic mark of hope is that it always looks into the future. So says Herman Zasse in the March issue of the Lutheran Witness, which is all about hope and overcoming the quiet despair with which we are so in danger of being overcome in these days. To find out more about hope, what Christian hope looks like, and what it means to be a hopeful community, pick up your copy of the March issue of the Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org witness or witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Luther had Wartburg. We have Collinsville. You're listening to Issues Etc. 
Hey, young adults, are you finding it harder and harder to meet and connect with other Lutheran men and women? Join us at University Lutheran Church in Champaign, Illinois, on Saturday, April 6th, for the Martin Plus Katie Conference. We'll talk about being men and women in Christ, meet new friends, get to know each other, and have fun. Register at martinpluskatie.org. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-P-L-U-S-K-A-T-I-E.org. Registration closes on Palm Sunday. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're going through listener email and the Issues Etc. comment line. Yahweh, the Almighty Creator, in His holy wrath treats sinners and the old creation together, just as sinful humankind will be decimated. So the old creation itself will be undone. Nevertheless, that does not mean annihilation and the end of creation. The convulsion of the old creation prepares for Yahweh's future new creation. For behold, I'm about to create a new heaven's and a new earth. From the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah chapters 13 through 27. You can find out about it at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040 and ask for the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah chapters 13 through 27. Here's a comment from the Issues Etc. comment line on the Lutheran battle for the Bible in Seminex. John in Lincoln, Nebraska. Might be helpful to look at your, uh, if you have a copy of uh, Castle's New Latin uh, Dictionary, uh, under the title or the uh, word Seminex, it means half dead. I hadn't uh, realized this before, but a few years ago I ran across this when I was looking up something else, and the uh, Latin term Seminex means half dead, which I'll let that go as a commentary on the faculty walkout 50 years ago. That was an irony that many have noticed, and Seminex, that shortened term, stands for seminary in exile, which is how the liberal faculty that walked out and the students considered themselves. They were like Israel going into exile, also not noting that the exile was punishment for their sins. Hmm. You know, when you stop reading your Bible and taking it seriously, you make those kind of mistakes. Some pretty boneheaded mistakes. So, you know, they claimed we were being sent into exile, forgetting that God sent his Old Testament people into exile precisely as punishment for their sins. And, well, sometimes the irony is truer than what the originators think. So it is an irony that that means half dead. Maybe they didn't have to know Latin back then. I'm sure I'm sure the faculty did. Those are some very, very smart guys, too smart for their own good. That's a bad... They were probably more more intelligent in their own estimation, which was part of the problem. Bad brand. Pride. Bad branding. Yeah. Who, who was it that said that John Teach expected, I'm very, how many, like, thousand churches to leave, and it ended up being, like, a couple hundred yeah. churches? They did not Major read the room. Major They didn't read the room. This comes from Christian in Corpus Christi, Texas. After Abram's name was changed to Abraham and Sarai's name was changed to Sarah... They are consistently referred to by their new names. 
Jacob, however, after receiving the name Israel, is still referred to by the name Jacob often. In Psalm twenty-two twenty-three, both names are even used in the same verse. Is there any significance as to why Jacob's old name was held on to throughout the scripture while the name Abram was dropped? Thanks for listening in Corpus Christi, Texas Christian. Well, I think it depends on what you mean by the word changed because Abraham's name was changed. Sarah's name was changed to embed into their new names the promise that God had made for them. Jacob's name is changed because of an encounter he had with God. You have wrestled with God. Something in the word Israel, the etymology is very, very shadowy. We don't know. But there's a connection between the name Israel and wrestling. You have wrestled with God and man and prevailed. That's why he's given that name. But I would say it's most likely the case that in Jacob's case, he's given an, an additional name that is a name that others will use for him, but in the narrative, he's called Jacob all the time. It's not like suddenly the narrative starts calling him Israel. It doesn't. But it's signaling that God has added a name to him that really is kind of between him and God. And that's not the case with Abraham or Sarah. So their names were changed. Jacob gets an additional name. It's a little bit like when Jesus has nicknames for all of his disciples. And Simon's nickname is Peter. That's not his name. His name is not Peter. Although he goes by it for the rest of his life, he takes it as a, as a new name. Sometimes he's called Simon Peter so that we know who they're talking about. But it's Simon whom he called Peter. So he has nicknames for his disciples and it doesn't mean that their name changes completely. It just simply means that that's kind of his name for them. And we could call Israel God's nickname for Jacob. This comes from Tim. I was recently listening to the Encore episodes from Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. In the 90s and early 2000s, the White Horse Inn was responsible for my father and thus young me moving from Arminianism through Reformed Baptists, eventually to the Presbyterian Church in America. Although my late father never made his way to the Lutheran Church, I eventually did in college. Having been too young in the 90s to understand the distinctions, I was not aware until recently of the effect that Drs. Horton and Rosenblatt indirectly had on me, and for them I am thankful. The number of times I could hear people in the studio cracking up from something Dr. Rosenblatt said in the air was most amusing, and I'm going to search out more of his episodes to listen to. Anyway, the one thing that stuck out to me was the live callers on your Encore episodes with Dr. Rosenblatt. As a comparatively recent listener to issues, etc., I've never heard callers live on the air. I was wondering why you no longer do this. And if it's an issue of not enough live listeners, if you have enough statistics on how many people listen live versus the podcast or how many on each platform, I'd love to know more about the statistics of one of my favorite podcasts. Thanks for the email, Tim. We always tell, and this has been the case since Issues Etc. started podcasting, shortly after Issues Etc. started podcasting, and that's been a lot of years. We were very nervous. And we, that was not our idea. That was not Jeff's idea. That was not my idea. That was the idea of one Paul Clayton who was way ahead of the game and said, wow, we got to get these shows at our former employer 
on this new medium called a podcast. And he made all of that happen. We inherited that. He's the one to thank. But very shortly, we had statistics at the time, very shortly after we started doing that, the on-demand listeners quickly outpaced the live listeners. And now we usually tell people upwards of 95% of our listeners are on-demand. The live listenership is, I would be surprised if it were 5% of the total listenership now. And that's part of the reason why we do it. We also pre-record. We do our recordings with our guests when the guest is available. We're yeah. live now. We're live. Michael New will be yeah. live in yeah. about five minutes. But we pre-record a lot of the show nowadays to get access to the best possible guests when they're available. And so you can't really do callers during that either. So those are the two factors. But the biggest factor is that the vast majority of our listenership is on demand. And so, yes, we are a radio show because we have radio affiliates with people who are listening live. But for all intents and purposes, the vast majority there are actually on-demand listeners. In those Encore episodes with Dr. Roseblatt, those were our Sunday night nationally syndicated show that used to be on 100 terrestrial radio stations, mm. XM Sirius Satellite Radio. And we would do an hour of interview, 45 minutes of an interview, and then we'd start taking callers for the next hour and 15 minutes. And we could do that because we had over 100 affiliates and we had Sirius and XM at the time. So in addition to... The audience is where it's easier for people to listen on demand. What you want to listen to, when you want to listen to it. The cost of airtime for Christian radio, it mm. would cost us for one hour Sunday night, which is not primo radio time. It's not almost it's a not thousand the of the dollars night. on yeah. a Christian radio talk show in San Francisco. Yeah. So it's there was a lot of of expenses associated with those affiliates. So podcasting is just extremely efficient and extremely inexpensive. And I will say about the, I've been in the studio where they recorded uh, the White Horse Inn back in the day. I filled in for Rod Rosenblatt over the course of about a month of shows that were all recorded kind of in one long session. And a lot of stuff ends up on the cutting room floor. What you hear on the White Horse Inn is the, well, Shane Rosenthal used to do it, but Shane would go through and take about an hour and a half of conversation and whittle it down to a half hour. And so a lot of stuff gets cut out. Shane was just, and still is an, an amazing producer. When we come back, we will be moving on to hour two of Issues Etc. Dr. Michael New will join us live. We're going to talk about the pro-choice strategy for the 2024 elections and CPAC, which some people are saying was not well attended. And for some reason over the last couple of years did not include a pro-life panel or speaker. This time it did. We'll discuss that next. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois, is happy to support the Christ-centered, 
cross-focus ministry of issues, etc. Join us for worship, Bible classes, youth ministry, and other opportunities to grow in Christ. We have a Christian day school for children in preschool to 8th grade. We are located at 1300 Beltline Road. Call us at 618-344-3151 or visit www.goodshepherdcollinsville.org. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com.